So um, when I say the word abundance, uh, what do you think of? Like what is an image that comes to mind for you? Uh, if I were to say, if I were to ask you uh, to kind of describe your life or the quality of your life, do you think the word abundance would be one of the words that you use. Now, it's interesting in our kind of society, so uh, there are two kind of competing mindsets when it comes to this idea. There's something called a uh, scarcity-based mindset and an abundance-based mindset. So typically, people who have a scarcity-based mindset, or I shouldn't say people who have, but kind of when we have, when we think more in terms of a scarcity uh, we have what is sometimes called a not enough attitude, right? So when we think about that, we usually complain about not having enough of something, like not enough time, not enough money, not enough energy, not enough resources to achieve certain goals. And typically, when we adopt a scarcity-based mindset, we frame our challenges through lack, Right, So I want to do this, but I can't because, and here are the reasons, because I don't have time, I don't have money, I'm not trained, or I, you know, I don't feel something at this time. And as a result, um, when we step into that, our lives tend to be focused on the wrong priorities. They tend to be focused on like preservation rather than growth, familiar surroundings rather than pursuing new frontiers and complacency over challenges. We want to stay safe. We want to stay secure. We want to kind of stay where we're at. And we don't want to venture out into things that are unfamiliar. Uh, Conversely, when we have an abundance-based mindset, we tend to focus on possibilities. I was reading an article about this this week, and uh, the writer gave the example of President Kennedy. Uh, He committed the nation... America, (laughs) to uh, landing a man on the moon in 1961 uh, before NASA had not even determined whether it was possible, given the the limitations of the technology at the time. So there was like, he had no idea whether that was even remotely possible, but he was like, we're going to do it. We're going to land a man on the moon. Uh, And the the author wrote, you know, Kennedy didn't care. He was not tied down by existing thinking, but instead focused on future possibilities. This is what I call, the author, uh, blue sky thinking. This idea of kind of just looking out onto the horizon and thinking about what possibilities there are. This is an abundance mindset, you know, in contrast to a scarcity mindset. And my question would be, For us, do you feel more as though you're living in abundance or in scarcity? With a mindset of abundance or scarcity. And I guess the way that you would answer the question, do you have an abundance or do you feel like you're in scarcity, answers the question of kind of where where your mindset is at. Now, um, so we're in a series called, uh, you know, The Incarnation in which we're exploring why Jesus came, you know, why Jesus stepped into this world, why he became flesh and blood, a flesh and blood human, and walked among his people. 
And specifically in today's passage, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And we're just going to look at what does that mean? What does it mean to have an abundant life? And how can we lean into that idea? Um, that's what we're going to look at today. So if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to John, uh, the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Oh, whoops. Oh, yeah. Uh, John chapter 10, and uh, we're going to start in, in uh, verse 1. John chapter 10, and we'll read all the way through uh, to verse 18, but we'll kind of take it one piece at a time. John chapter 10 in verse 1. And um, this is God's word. And it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Okay, so let's let's pause just right there for a second. Now, a lot of things are kind of happening in this passage. Jesus, he starts invoking this kind of language of shepherds and sheep. And, um, you know, he, he is actually kind of rebuking the leadership of Israel. So a lot of this goes back to... Old Testament passages like Ezekiel 34 uh, is one of the passages where God kind of rebukes the leaders of Israel. He says there was no shepherd and they became food for the wild beasts. So in talking about the people, kind of the people of Israel, he's saying the leaders didn't lead them well. And so they just became kind of food for the people. So Jesus in this passage, he's kind of rebuking the, uh, the leaders of the time, the religious leaders of the time. It's kind of saying they haven't been good shepherds. And there have been various periods throughout Israel's history when the leaders, and remember in Israel's history, the religious leaders, the political leaders, they're all kind of mixed up together. It's a theocracy. And so sometimes, you know, the kings who are supposed to be spiritual leaders, they're not really leading spiritually. They're leading more just politically. Sometimes, you know, prophets are not kind of doing their job. And so there have been these periods throughout history, and Jesus is kind of bringing this up. And he's saying, you've had these bad, these kind of bad leaders, you know, bad shepherds, uh, people who really haven't had your, your best interest in mind at times. And Jesus is drawing a contrast between that and himself. He's saying, you know, the real shepherd, the good shepherd, he talks about the gatekeeper who would be like a hired hand. He's like, the gatekeeper would know the real shepherd's voice. Now, that, now, it's all a little bit convoluted. There are these vague references to things in the past. So even the leaders, the religious leaders who are listening to him, they don't fully understand what he's saying. So he goes on in verse 6. It says, This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said, again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robber, robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
right? So Jesus, he juxtaposes himself with those who have in the past and those who have in his day been kind of false teachers in the world. And their goal has been to steal and kill and destroy. So they have exploited people. They have manipulated people. They have used people for their own gain, for their own kind of financial gain, for their own political gain, for their own gain in society. And Jesus says, in contrast to them, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And this abundant life would suggest, and the idea would be kind of the more literal way would be kind of the, like a fat life. You know, just the idea of contented sheep. Now, the main idea, okay, for today is that Jesus came. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to give us abundant life. Jesus came to give us abundant life. Now, what we'll do is break down what does that abundant life look like, though? Like, what does that mean to have abundant life in Jesus? So three things. Okay, the first thing is this. To know the true path. To know the true path. There's only one path to abundant life. And what Jesus is saying in this passage is he himself is the path. He says, I am the door. I'm the gate. I'm the way. I'm the the path. I believe that This is one of the most significant ideas that we have to grasp today. Particularly in our world and also even in in the church today. Sin and the sense of brokenness that comes with sin begins with this simple phrase. God, you are not enough. That's it. Sin, rebellion against God, turning against God, sinning against God, hurting God, grieving God, and everything that comes along with sin, which would include a sense of brokenness, loneliness, kind of, you know, depression that we feel, feeling disconnected, feeling isolated, the anxiety that we have, like all the things that come along with sin, guilt, shame, pain, whether it's sin done to us or sin that we commit against other people, everything that comes with that, everything that's a part of that comes out of this one belief, God, you're not enough. You're not enough to fix me or for that matter, fix anybody around me, or for that matter, fix the world, all of society. God, you're not enough to provide for me or protect me or save me. God, you're not enough to satisfy me, to make me feel happy and fulfilled. Everything that we do in our lives, to do what we believe God is incapable of doing in our lives, results in that dissatisfaction and hardship. Do you guys understand what I'm saying there? What I'm saying is everything that we do that we feel like God can't do, 
whether we would admit that or not. Like when we feel like we are doing something to make up for where God is failing in our lives, that's where all of our dissatisfaction and hardship comes from. Because we feel like, God, you're not enough. You're not satisfying these, these areas of my life. So I have to fill in the gaps where you're not doing it. That's the core of sin. You know, I mean, look at Romans 1. The, the whole idea is to look at God and be like, yeah, but look at all the other stuff. Like, look at everything else that's here. To look at the creator and be like, yeah, but creation. There's so much out here. To look at myself and say like, yeah, but, yeah, but. Like, I'm very important. I'm very significant. And there's so much going on here, God, that to reduce me to somebody who needs just one thing, just one person in my life, that's not enough. That's too simple. That's too uncomplicated. I am very complicated. I'm very complex, God, and I need more than you. Contrastingly, a flourishing life begins with this simple phrase. The heart of a flourishing life is just complete and utter belief in this, this statement. God You are the only enough for me. Now, I know that's a little ungrammatical, what I just said there. It sounds grammatically incorrect, but it's intentional because it was the only way I could think to get that sentiment right. Jesus, you are the only one who could ever make me whole. The only one who can, who can and does provide for my truest needs. The only one who can fix what's broken in me. The only one who will ever truly satisfy my heart, irrespective of my circumstance. Only Jesus can do that. You put your hope anywhere else, it will be dependent on something shaky. Whether or not you get the job, whether or not the relationship works out, whether or not this happens or that happens, or you finally get the words of validation, or it's a nice day, you know, or the pictures come out right. Like, whether or not something happens the way that you want it to happen, anything that you put your hope in, other than Jesus, will be dependent on something shaky. Now, you might think I'm oversimplifying this. Um, I'll give you a couple of reasons why I don't think I am. Uh, one is from Luke 10. You don't have to turn there, but Luke 10, 41 to 42, this is the story of Mary and Martha. Right? And you remember, you know, they're at, they're at you know, Martha, Mary, Mary, uh, Martha's hosting, basically, and she's running around, and she's trying to get all these things done. She has so many things to do, right? And Mary's just sitting there at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. And Martha's like mad, right? She, you know, this is, this is, you know, first child syndrome, right? This is like, I'm here doing all the work, right? And my little sister's over there just chilling, right, at the feet of Jesus. Like, what's going on here? And she actually, Martha, is so entitled in this moment, right? 
Like she believes in her rightness so much that she actually goes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, rebuke my little sister because what is she doing? Right, like I'm over here running around trying to get all this work done and she's just sitting there. Probably this is what she's thinking. Now this is in the Bible, but I'm just, uh, I'm just, assu- like not assuming, but I'm speculating. Martha's probably thinking, dude, Mary, Mary's lazy. Like why doesn't she do some work? And Jesus says, the Lord answered her. This is Luke ten forty one. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. See, if you go to like a world-class steakhouse, what do you do? You get steak, right? If you go to a world-class steakhouse, you know, you, you don't get salad, Right? You get center cut ribeye, you know, medium rare, you get a T-bone or you get a filet mignon, right? Like you gotta get steak, cause that's what, that, that's why you're there, right? If you go to like a Michelin star, you know, sushi restaurant, you know, I mean, you might get your favorite sushi, but I would say you probably get omakase, right? Because you wanna get what the chef says is the best thing. If you're gonna pay all that money, you're gonna go to this fancy place, then that's what you're gonna get. When you go to Hawaii, you go to the beach, right? When you go to Paris, you go to the Eiffel Tower. When you are in the presence of the giver of life, let him give you life. Sit at his feet. Yeah, you can ask him for presence. He's not Santa, but you can ask him for presence. And you can say, God, give me a job. Give me a raise. Give me a house. Give me a girlfriend. But his presence is far more significant than his presence. You see what I did there? Those are two different words. Like sit at his feet, listen to his word, enjoy him because he is the only enough that there is. So that's number one. That's what abundant life is, to know that he is the only, the only true path. Here's a second component of abundant life to have eternal security. All right, so let's read on here. Verse 11, it says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He says that repeatedly. He lays down his life. He lays down his life. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. So Jesus is comparing a genuine shepherd to a hired hand. He's saying the genuine shepherd loves the sheep, has a relationship with the sheep. He's going to go out. He's going to fight for his sheep. Some hired hand, some guy who's just there for the money is not going to do that. The world is filled with hired hands. Because there are a bunch of people who love you. Actually, I was, um, 
I was doing research about this a while ago, but like people, so people have, um, like your experience buying something is more important oftentimes than actually the product that you get, right? Which is why, this is how luxury brands actually work and succeed. Because when you go into like a luxury store, they treat you uh, like you're special, you know, like you are a very important person. And so when you go in, even if the product itself is not the best, the fact that you go in and they treat you so well, you really like that and you enjoy it. So it gives you this positive association in your mind. So you'll come back and get that thing. You'll be like, oh, well, I only buy, you know, whatever. I don't know. I don't know much about luxury brands. But it's like, I'll only buy this particular brand, you know, because every time I go there, like you might not even realize this, but somewhere subconsciously this is what's happening. It's like because every time I go there, I feel like luxurious, you know, like I feel like a very important person because they treat me that way every time I go there. And so I will continue to go there, even if the product itself you might not care that much for. You might not care for this certain type of car, but if every time you go there you feel really important, then you'll keep buying it. You know, you might not care for, you know, a certain type of, uh, you know, clothing or like some kind of accessory, but if you feel like really good when you go there, you'll continue to do it. So this is actually, people in advertising space and in like luxury brands, they know this. So this is how they design all of their their stores. This is how they design even like their website, all the kind, even their advertisements to give you this feeling. But the thing is, those people, they don't care about you, right? Like they don't care. If you go in and you don't have any money, will they continue to treat you that way? No, of course not. Because the bottom line is to make money. That's their bottom line. They treat you well because they see it as a path to make money. Now that's just that's just capitalism. I'm not blaming these people. I'm not blaming anyone who like works at you know one of these places. That's their job, right? That's their goal. But that kind of hired hand, somebody who's out there to get something from you, but if they actually had to do something to sacrifice for you, they wouldn't do it. They'd bounce. First sign of danger, there's the wolf. It's like, oh, I'm out of here. And Jesus says, what Jesus says is, I'll never do that. He says, I'll never do that. When I see the wolf... Not only do I put myself in danger, I die. Because that's the gospel, right? Why did Jesus come to earth? He came to die. Like Jesus didn't become a baby and then as he was growing up think, I wonder what I'm going to do with my life. You know, like when Jesus was seven, he wasn't like, ah, what should I be when I grow up? You know, should I be governor? You know, should I be a Pharisee? Should I be a tax collector? You know, what should I do with my life? No, Jesus didn't do that. When he came to earth, he knew the reason he came. He knew what his mission was. It was to live in the flesh, to be tempted, to be human. Yet to not sin and to die as an innocent man for the sake of all humanity. He knew that his whole life and he lived his whole life for that purpose. 
I've talked about this before, but, you know, I love the metaphor of sheep. Sheep are, you know, us being compared to sheep. Sheep are completely defenseless. Sheep are completely defenseless creatures, right? Now, there are three ways typically that animals react to danger. You know, this is also kind of human. But if you ever watch, like, you know, Nat Geo or whatever, like, these are the things they talk about, right? So animals, they, they react to danger in three ways. Two of them you'll probably recognize, fight or flight, right? And then the third one is posture, right? So, fight, you know, when, when the adrenaline gets going, if, somebody's, if someone threatens an animal, right, like a dog or something, you could think about it, uh, they have this choice, right? They can either fight, they can flight, you know, run away, or they can posture, they can, like, try to make themselves big or something like that to scare the other animal. They're basically like an in- intimidation tactic to scare the other animal away. Now, think about sheep for a second. So, you know, a sheep, let's just say Shep the sheep, you know, whatever, Shep. You know, he's like in the field, right, and a bear comes. Uh, what, can, what, can, what can Shep do, right? Shep's got no built-in weapons. He's got no claws. He's got no fangs. He's got no talons. He's got no venom. He's got no antler or horns. He has no weapons, he has no defense, right? Sheep have no armor, no scales, no spikes, no quills. They don't even have a spray, right, like a skunk has to spray something. Like they got nothing. Sheep have absolutely nothing. Right? It's okay. A lot of other animals don't, maybe don't have any kind of weapons, no offense, no defense. Maybe they can run. Unfortunately, sheep are not fast. Sheep are not agile. In fact, sheep trip over their own wool when it gets too long. And if the wool ever gets in water, this is terrible. They're just totally designed to not fight or run. Because when sheep get water, their, their wool gets filled with water. Then the water actually weighs them down. So they're even slower and, and like clumsier. So they can't swim. They can't fly. They can't run. They have no flight. And then the third one is posture. Right? So, you know, like a bear will, like, get real big, right? You know, a lion will roar. Even, you know, dogs, dogs will bark or growl, right? Even cats, cats will hiss. Like, you know, they'll do that. They'll, like, arch their back. Sheep, they just go, bah. <laughs> That's it. That's all they can do. They can ba. They can ba loud. That's, that's the most intimidating that a sheep can possibly B, and Jesus says, you are like sheep. Now, it might be, you know, you might feel insulted, right? (laughs) Like, what? I'm like a sheep? See, here's the thing. When Satan comes to you, you are like a sheep. You can't fight, you can't run, and you can't intimidate Satan. You have no weapons. You are defenseless. Without Christ, we live in eternal insecurity. That's how we live our lives. There are two lies that Satan leans on to tempt us to sin. He says, God doesn't love you enough, and that's why he withholds from you. This is the first lie. right? Remember back in the Garden of Eden, there's the forbidden fruit, and what, is, what does the serpent say? He says, oh, man, did God really say you can't eat that? That seems shady. 
Like, why is God trying to hold back something from you? He knows if you eat it, you're going to become like him. And he doesn't want that. He doesn't want good for you. Right? Satan makes Eve fixate on the one thing she cannot do. The one thing God said don't do. Right? God says, do whatever you want. Just don't do this one thing. And that one thing is what Satan fixates on and forces Eve to look at such that she sees it as outweighing all that God said she could do. God said you can do anything you want. You can eat anything you want except for this one thing. And Satan says, God hates you. Man, God really doesn't love you if he, didn't give, he doesn't let you do that, that one thing. And against that lie, we are defenseless. And then after we have sinned, to keep us from repentance, Satan says, now you're too bad for God to love and forgive you. Run and hide so nobody ever finds out. These are Satan's two lies. God doesn't love you, and that's why he withholds from you. And you start to believe it. You say, oh, man, Satan, you're right. Now, we don't say that because we don't know he's the one talking to us. But we say it to ourselves, like, oh, yeah, you know, you're right. Why does God not want me to be happy? Why does he not want me to have all the things that I want? Why is he not letting me do the thing? Why is he not helping me to find what I truly desire, who I truly am, where I'm supposed to be? Like, why is he withholding all of these things from me? And then so we just go out on our own and we just do what we want. And then after we make mistakes and we feel foolish for them, Satan says, see, you're so bad. God, God can't love you now. You're tainted. You're broken. And against these attacks, we are defenseless outside of Christ. Yet inside of Christ, when we are in Christ, we are eternally secure. Not because of us, but because of him. If you look a little bit down, I don't have it up on the screen, but John 10, 27 to 29, it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So when Satan accuses us of being too bad for God to love us or of God being too unloving to give us what we truly desire, the work of Christ defends us to keep us from sin. What Jesus tells us is the Father has not withheld his most prized possession from you, his own Son. See, where Satan says, God doesn't love you enough to give you everything, God says, I love you so much that I've given you what is most important to me, my only son. And after we have sinned to draw us to repentance, where Satan says, you're too bad, God could never forgive you, 
God points us to the cross and the empty tomb that represents the complete sufficiency of the work of Christ. That sin has been 100% paid for. All of your sin, past, present, and future, if you are in Christ, has been 100% paid for. And God will point us back to that repeatedly. Back to the cross, back to the empty tomb. Which is why every year, we will celebrate Easter, we will celebrate Christmas, and we're not one day going to be like, ah, Easter's getting kind of old. You know, like, we've been doing this. Church, we've been doing this for thousands of, a couple thousand years now. You know, should we move on from Easter? No, we're never going to move on from Easter. Easter is the most glorious thing, event that we could ever celebrate. And that's not just for Easter. It's meant to be for us every day whenever we look to Jesus. An abundant life, to live an abundant life you will know that Jesus is the only true way. That he gives you eternal security. And here's the third thing. That you have ultimate purpose. That you have in this life ultimate purpose. This is the end of our passage. It says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So a couple things, right? Jesus first, he points to his own mission. And he says, this is why I came to die, not just for Israel, right? Not just for national Israel, right? And I just said it was all tied up, right? There was no separation of church and state for Israel for many years. It was all one thing. You know, the, the political leaders, the religious, they're all supposed to come from one place. And it was all about Israel. Israel was God's chosen people. So that's still how God's people in Jesus' time are thinking. And yet he's like, no, 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 no. You don't get it. Right? I'm not just for the sheep of this fold, which is referring to the national Israelites. He's like, I'm for all of God's people everywhere. This is why Jesus came, not to be a Jewish king, but to create a new, all new kind of kingdom that transcends racial lines, you know, language barriers, geographical barriers, like God's kingdom now is not about any country or any one people. It is for all God's people of every tribe and every nation on earth. Jesus says, that's my mission. That's why I came to die. And this is the mission that we are now a part of. How does that relate to abundant living? So this past week, I was at a I was at a vision meeting for a VOR. So we, there was this meeting, and um, you know, a bunch of kind of church leader, leaders gathered, and people from there gathered. And um, so I didn't really know anybody at this meeting. You know, I was invited by the executive director because we've been doing stuff with them, and um, I knew him, and I knew the volunteer coordinator. I didn't know any of the other kind of pastors and and leaders. And so people are going around, and they're kind of just sharing, you know, where they're from and, and what they're doing there. And 
one of the guys shared this thing. I was I was freaking blown away. Okay, this this man. He's a pastor at a church. He's been a pastor for, I think, 30-something-odd years. And it's a church of, like, 250 people, you know, so not a huge church or anything. They support 50 missionary families. 250-person church supports 50 missionary families. Think about that. Five to one. Five people to one missionary family. I was blown away right people there and and look it's not like you know we're sending out heather right so i'm like we're sending out our first missionary you know next year and you know their church has been there for like 30 some years i'm like we're like six years old you know and stuff but it's not like you know it's not like he was like oh come on get out of here you know it's not not like that right like they're you know they're like cheering us on they're like that's awesome that's awesome right and that 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 uh pastor He's like, believe it or not, we started with one, right? That's, that's the idea. So we're, we're talking about, you know, VOR, and a lot of it was how can we better serve the refugees? You know, what are, what are better ways that we can reach the community and share the gospel and also kind of fix some of the things that aren't working that well? And let me tell you, okay, I didn't, again, I didn't really know anyone in the room except for a couple people. I didn't have a single conversation about, my family or the Lakers or really any other, you know, common interest, small talk type thing. And I never left a meeting less sad, <laughs> like less confused, you know, less disconnected. And I didn't have a single personal conversation there we just talked about how can we help people and i'm not saying i'm not saying it's wrong to like talk about your life or anything like that obviously i would say in fact that that's a necessary part of our lives what i would say though is that oftentimes what i feel like is the missing component in our lives is that we don't feel purposeful we don't feel like we are connected to some kind of ultimate purpose, right? One of my favorite lines from the end of uh, the movie Braveheart is, you know, I'm not going to do the accent, but he says, you know, he's like about to be executed, right? And he says, every man dies, not every man truly lives. And do you know why I like stuff like that? Anybody likes stuff like that? Because it makes you feel like there are things out there that are bigger than life and death. You know, like I, I, I thought about it. And, by you know, I was going to do the accents. I was practicing at home. And I was doing it. And then Micah started copying me. And then he started doing it. He's like, every man dies. He's like saying it like really weird like that. He was saying it like that. It was really funny. I was like, every man dies. I'm like that. And then he starts saying, he's like saying it. I was like, this is so funny, and I thought about it, and I was like, why does that, why does that mean something to me? Is it just the accent? You know, is it, like, just the way that they say it? Like, is it war? Like, what is it that makes me feel something when I hear that? But it is that idea that, it's, that, that life is supposed to be connected to something that is far more significant than your life, than survival. You know death is inevitable. But life 
is perhaps not inevitable. At least life defined as something beyond just your existence, just your survival. Life as defined by that inexplicable quality as defined as something more than just the sum of your biological and psychological reality. That life, that idea, is by no means inevitable. Many people are dying while looking for it. It's hard to put your finger on what life is or declare that you're truly living it at all sometimes, let alone living it abundantly. And, and my question would be, doesn't it make sense that if life is to be worth living, we must live for something that is also, also worth our dying? And what I would say is that we do have something. Christ has given us such a cause, a cause that supersedes our instinct for survival. He says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He says, I came, I came so that people could know that there is a true path and I am that path. Right? I came so that people could have eternal security, not eternal insecurity, the complete opposite, so that no matter what anybody says about them, no matter what anybody thinks about them, no matter how anybody threatens them, they will feel 100% secure in me. And I came so that people would not be grasping at the air in the dark for a purpose in life. So they would not be searching constantly, what am I here to do? Why do I exist? But they would know to make disciples of all nations. See, the abundant life, that's the abundant life that Jesus lays out. And I tell you, church, if you follow him into it, you cannot lose it is not that he will lead you to a victorious life as you define it. He himself is the victory you crave, the elusive satisfaction you seek. To walk in his steps is victory, regardless of the result. Trust that abundant life is found only in him and enjoy the truth and security and purpose that follow. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much that you came, God. You did not have to come to this earth and become like us. You did not have to take on flesh to be limited to the body of a babe, to grow up as a human, to be you know, to cry and to bleed and to be vulnerable. And yet you did. Because you love us. You wanted us to see you that way. You wanted to show us that there is a true path. One true path one 
real way in a sea of false ways. One good shepherd in a sea of hired hands, God, who abandoned us at the first sign of trouble. God, help us to trust that you are the way to trust that we can only have our security in you and to trust that any purpose that we would seek in this life must begin with what you commanded us when you left. Give us faith and conviction and power to pursue all that you have given us, this abundant life. Thank you, and we love you, and in Jesus' name we